0: morning! This is Brian Brushwood, host of Scam School, Cord Killers, and Hacking the System on Nat Geo, and you are listening to Too Much Scrolling. I'll see you in the future.
1: Hey, welcome to Too Much Scrolling for February 27th, 2024. I'm Steve Fodor. I'm Chip
0: Hessemflug. Leap year, Chip Hessemflug chip has some flow plus one
1: day <laughs> plus one day yeah i'm gonna give everyone an extra day this week, Dave. thank you chip we're just a couple of guys sitting around talking about things that are important to us hopefully they're important to you if you need more information there's so many great ways to find more information especially on thursday february 29th 2024 celebration of that that extra wobble on the earth going around the sun Well, you know what? That's the point of an extra day, Steve. (laughs) We gotta do some math. It's a math day. We gotta figure out. There's three hundred and sixty-five and a quarter-ish days, so we gotta we gotta make those up eventually. It's a makeup day. Film at eleven. Brings us to our film at 11, our movie of the week. You went to the movie theater and saw the latest from Ethan Cohen. This is Drive Away Dolls. A little bit different than the previous Cohen brothers, right? Right, because there's only one Cohen brother in this production, just Ethan, for the first time. He's writing with his wife. Yes, who has a very specific viewpoint on the world and has a very specific story to tell. That's Trisha Cook, who is is helping Ethan to put this story together. Well, Steve, drive away, Paul. I, I saw the preview of this as far as the,
0: the advertisement, oh, I don't know, about four or five months ago. I said, oh, this is going to look like a lot of fun. It's a pretty simple uh, story. Um, some people are going to pick up a car and deliver it to Tallahassee. The wrong people pick it up and there's something in the trunk and there is a chase that goes on. So the structure of it is not any earth-shattering uh, story, but it is a story with, um, with a lesbian, Ben Steve, and a lot of um, uh, the, the humor, the uh, experiences are from their point of view it's got a wonderful cast. It is very charming. It, there's a lot of humor in it. Um, and at the end, you know, what do we have? We have a lot of dildos, Dave. That's what we
1: have. It is It is definitely a, a different story from what we heard from the Cohen brothers before. But it's got that Cohen brothers style to it, right? I would say so. I'm going to say 60 out of 100.
0: I found it enjoyable. Um, I, I laughed at the parts of it, but it certainly is. As we get ready to talk about our book that's uh, of, the, of the month with Pam, you know, there's something that's very um, current about the what we focus on in many ways. Mm. So sexuality is something that is very important to people today, and that is definitely the focus of this. They do stop in Wilmington, North Carolina, Steve which I just, there is a North Carolina little uh, uh, bend to the story. I should let you know that, but it ultimately ends up in Tallahassee.
1: Nice. I I look forward to seeing this one. Eventually I've heard very mixed reviews. Uh, It's sounds like a fun adventure ride. Well, Steve, I'm not the only person who got to watch something this week. Looks like he flipped on
0: Netflix. Tell me about Avatar.
1: Yes, the new Avatar, The Last Airbender series hit Netflix this weekend. And this is not the Avatar with the Blue Cat People. No, this is this is the other Avatar. and And I did see a headline that the star of this show thought he was auditioning for the Blue Cat People Avatar before he got this role. He was confused because there's so many Avatars in 2024. Well, everyone can choose their own avatar, Steve. That's called social media. That's right. This is the quote-unquote live-action version of the original Emmy-winning cartoon Avatar The Last Airbender. That one was on Nickelodeon from 2005 to 2008, and it it is a spectacular storytelling adventure. This live-action version is that same spectacular visual beast. There's so much money that was put into costumes and sets and so many great special effects in this. And the story really gives us this action uh, feeling of this very Asian culture boy finding his way through the world of the four elemental powers and finding his way to successfully save all of the people that are threatened by the, the bad guys. There's bad guys and good guys in a very pure way in this one. All right. So did you find it as engaging as the cartoon? I use the phrase reverse uncanny Valley because this is live action but I'm looking at it and recalling the animated version of these scenes. Yes, they made beautiful imagery from that cartoon into this live action. Yes, I am engaged by the storyline still, but there's there's something uncanny valley about creating a different type of animation. The special effects are sometimes overwhelming the story, then they're sometimes, you know, just spectacular in a wonderful way. I, I, I think that the original stands as the best version of this story. Interesting metaphors of personal control and power are in play here. We'll talk about those when we get to our book of the month and some themes about putting others before self and never giving up the fight very uh asian culture conversations yeah. in this one i i enjoy it, that it sounds very asian it is it is very much uh, a metaphor for the the kingdoms of the asian continent the communist china and japan and the Philippines and Vietnam might be the metaphors that are being used for the four kingdoms of this story. Those of you who love the original, you'll probably like this just fine, but it pales in comparison to the original.
0: Book it. Book it. Book it. Book it. Book
1: it. Book it. 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 brings us to our book in our book of the week it is the end of february it is time to talk about the future we should bring in pam the to tell us all about it good morning pam
2: good morning guys how's it going
1: it's great oh it's super exciting the future we to talk about the future
0: <laughs> the future a book from, twi- a book from 2023 the that was a
1: little just a little bit ahead of its time right <laughs> yeah, our book this month is called The Future. It is published by Naomi Alderman in 2023. So this is a brand new book, a uh, very very current uh conversation about who we are and where we're headed, Pam.
2: Yes, and you guys, I read this book when it came out in either October or November of 2023. And I thought, ooh, I want to talk to Stephen Chip about this. Um, and I had planned to just kind of skim it and find a couple of quick quotes. But I ended up rereading the whole book. It's a very dense book. There's a lot going on. And um, yeah, it's rare for me to read a book twice within like a four-month block. But but this, this one was, I thought, very well worth rereading. There were a lot of things I had missed on a single read.
0: So I... If I looked at it as far as the publishing date, 2023, it was probably written, you know, either during pandemic, before the pandemic, just a little bit, uh, because it just seems so modern, uh, present.
1: There are several mentions of the pandemic of 2020 in the text, so this is post pan or during the pandemic when Naomi was writing this for sure. And thinking through some of those issues of where we as a society are headed. Do do you want to do a plot summary Pam? Is there a plot <laughs> summary to the future? Sure there
2: is. So this is a novel that's really based on the idea that all of the major tech billionaires in the world have a bunker. And you know one of the questions that we kind of face in any kind of climate reading, any kind of um, cli-fi or, or climate fiction is like, why doesn't everyone just work together and figure out the climate? We can do it. We have the resources, we have the ability, we have lots of ideas. Um, and then why don't these tech billionaires get more involved in in actually changing the future? And Alderman's idea is they don't care. They have their bunkers. They have their strategies for seeing through the apocalypse. So it's a really fascinating premise. Um, I actually really loved some of the characters in this novel. Um, and But before I go too, too deep. So this is a novel about... The apocalypse and the bunkers where tech billionaires end up,
0: like Zuckerberg has a uh, island, um, or is developing an island, or the tech billionaires who are working to create the city next to St. Louis, uh, San Francisco. Excuse me, mm. um, who are running into? They're doing it right now, or the in, in news t- this week. The um, because of what's going on in San Francisco, the tech leadership is getting involved in local politics because they're finding it unacceptable the what of how the city is being run and where their businesses are located and how it's impacting them
1: it's all about how Things are impacting these billionaires in this story, but we do get the stories of all of the other preppers. We get some very interesting look into how everybody else is looking at the possibility of the future and all of the other characters' plans for if uh, the, the worst scenario happens.
2: Can I just ask, since I definitely love this book, I'm the one who brought it to the book club, but what did you guys think of it? Like, how did this, how did this read? This really struck a chord with me, but I'm not sure if it would with everyone. Did you guys like the book? Why or why not?
0: <laughs> well, comrade, um, <laughs> there's definitely a little Marxism going on in here. Certainly there is there is criticism against the, the billionaires um, and sort of what they're thinking and what they think they can do. This idea that you can plan for every nuance and the AI will what and by the way, the AI definition was kind of fun to listen to. Um, I still think there's something that, you know, the the revelation that the human mind has the ability to be more imaginative. I think that has a lot more to do with it. But the idea that that somehow we're going to find this collective that's going to be able to solve everything, I, I think that's kind of you know, um naive. We can't solve every nuance of an environment and um that was kind of where we were coming toward the end and i was like yeah this is just kind of this is a book this is kind of an exercise in thought
2: but this wasn't a collective like we'll we'll talk through the specific ideas but this is This is just being manipulated by someone other than who you think you're being manipulated by. This is not, I would say, a collective at all. I mean, this is three tech billionaires and behind them.
0: I was thinking more along at the end where that, oh, if we ever do this and we can have the perfect environment with the with the perfect uh, uh, everything is coming back. um, Not not entirely 100 percent perfect, but, you know, just if we could just get things out of the way. And we all could work together.
2: But the utopian vision is controlled by three people. It's just three different people than you thought it was. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's not.
0: Sure. I mean, but. There's a real know,
2: darkness can... to this utopia. <laughs> I,
0: I absolutely understand that. I mean, that's isn't that the story of most utopias? Yeah. Um, but, you know, the, the idea of going back to Steve Jobs, where he said, you didn't know you wanted an iPhone until we had an iPhone. So these Visionaries certainly have a special place in society. Entrepreneurship has a very special place in society. And yes, there can be some damning parts to it. And certainly this is taking it very dark.
1: That was the first thing that I I texted in our group chat about this is the tone of this is very harsh. There's Mm -hmm. a very... Negative tone that the author is bringing us about what we are currently experiencing, where we currently are in the development of technology and control by the major corporations, and, I, and that
0: that is to me one of the if we had to, to critique current society a, on a very deep level, that we're human, we we have, we are animals in many many ways. And we can be manipulated in ways, and we know that we can do it. And if you don't know you can do it, just pick up your, your uh, cell phone mm-hmm. and open a, an app, and you recognize what you can be done. And when you look around society on drug use, the introduction of gambling apps to mm-hmm. like all your sporting events and stuff like that, if we slowly killed you by introducing sugar into your body, then you know you could see that you know how much of a guardrail do you put on an individual? How much of it is choice, and how much of it is being manipulated? Mm-hmm. You go into some kind of uh, social media, whether Twitter or Facebook or whatever, and you know within you know ten minutes you're being taken to you know conspiracy thoughts or whatever. That's not natural, and I don't think that objectively you would look and go that's reasonable but how much can you control how much of the grocery store can you lock away from people because it's poison to them Mm -hmm. yeah this is it's this is more than a free will this i mean this is certainly we're we're probably at the what we're studying in society this is behavior economics how -hmm. much of it is your natural inclination And how much do we guardrail ourselves? Um, We had a program where, you know, if you wanted to gamble, you go to Vegas. But if they bring gambling to you, you know, what does that change in society? What does that do to people?
1: And that is one of the main themes of this book, that idea of the fox and the rabbit and how much... We live in our little bubble where we have the reflection of ourselves and how how that works for our brain. And is that truth or is that manipulation? There's so much for I, I don't
0: know, Steve. As we record on a Sunday morning, is there any manipulation going on anywhere in the United States?
1: <laughs> There's so much philosophy to this that that the whole time I was thinking I don't even know the story as much as the the parables and the sermons and the 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 idea of the biblical pieces of this that the authors bring in and, and uh, I was there for that. Well, Steve, uh, years of Catholic training have, have prepared you. There you go.
2: <laughs> well, so but I thought there was a pretty interesting story. I mean, I really love legend. So Jen is our main character and she is a survival expert and she makes videos about survival um and she's you know a, a prepper she was in Hong Kong her backstory is super tragic in a really fascinating way she meets this woman who they just have such a strong attraction and I love how Martha is not described as super physically attractive but there's just that spark between the two of them and it turns out you know that that Martha is an Enoch. Uh her she's the daughter of like a a Bundy, oh. <laughs> an Oregon, an Oregonian. Um, the Bundy family.
0: Uh, you not, know, whatever. not that there's anything wrong with that.
2: Right, but there's a lot of um. You know, there are a lot of this is a roman a clé, as we would call it, a a novel where. Each of the characters represents someone from the real world, right? Mm-hmm. And so, but but I think that like Li Zhen is such a great character because she falls in love with this woman who puts an app on her phone and now she gets drawn into this crazy life, like end of the world bunker life, billionaire bunker life that she had zero connection to and as we see that unravel through her eyes i don't i thought it was fascinating and to me she was a really great character because i think there's this whole you know i'm certainly not a prepper um but i'm fascinated by prepper culture and this was like a really interesting look at super wealthy prepper culture and then super ordinary prepper culture and how those are so different like learning how to hunt versus making sure you have bunkers on every continent, right? Right. Making sure you have massive, luxurious, like, oh, 300 people could live here for 300 years kind of bunkers on each continent. So I don't know. I, I love this story. And it was funny because I think, Steve, the first time I read it four months ago, I got really caught up in the philosophy and I almost had to reread it because there were so many characters thrown at you and some of them were internet personas. So like there was a lot to connect and then rereading it. I was really way more in the story than my first read.
1: Okay. That's, that's good to know. I was, I was definitely in the philosophy of it and, and definitely didn't know the characters as well because I was focused on that. Right.
2: And so can I ask you guys, one of the questions that's raised really early in the novel, but I think kind of goes through, is if we do have sort of apoc- an apocalyptic event, and it's something we think about all the time, right? There's so many so many ways we could get Death. To the
0: apocalypse. Death, that's why we're black and smoke marble <laughs> reds. <laughs> but you know, whether we
2: have like a climate apocalypse, a nuclear apocalypse, a meteor, I mean, there's a million ways that things could go. Would you rather survive or not survive the apocalypse? Like that's one of the questions, right?
1: Oh boy. (laughs) Was was the book The Road actually mentioned in the text of this text? It was, yes. Yes, I know it it was. was. (laughs) Yes, The Road... Uh, no, I do not want to be in the road. I know I do not want to be in the the zombie apocalypse surviving and running and bleeding and, and, and losing and losing and losing and losing. No, no, no. Well, thank goodness most of us
0: don't have to live in that in that type of environment, at least in the West. But and I, I mean that because if you were in Sudan right now, or yeah. you're over in Israel and, yeah. um, Gaza. or over yeah. in, in Ukraine, yeah, I mean, they're, they're living it. And, and most kids wake up today and they've got their bowl of cereal and they go to their school and it's heated and any number of things. I, I certainly am on the, the idea that we would work to survive. And that would be the initial part. Was it Thomas Hobbes who said that life could be solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. Mm -hmm. And so we recognize that poverty is man's natural state. And we have built this world. It could easily be taken away by some cataclysm, you know, some invading group like what Ukraine's experiencing right now, um, their initial thought is survive and to make a better world for their their kids. But at the same time, I mean, we're just animals. We, we could die very quickly. Mm-hmm.
2: Now, what about the space of AI in this novel? I really enjoyed, I mean, I've the three of us have all been thinking about AI a lot over the past few years. Um, I really enjoyed the the sort of two different narratives around artificial intelligence. What did you guys think of the AI representation?
0: In this Incredibly thing? timely. That There's yes. your, your, your part yes. that immediately I got is that our writer, she really grabbed the zeitgeist, the moment of today and to be able to churn out a book that, addresses so many of the fears of today very quickly i my goodness how amazing for that
1: And I love how you pointed out that this is a mechanical Turk. This is not just an AI, not just an algorithm, but there's a component where there is humans controlling the AI that the other humans don't know is behind the AI where they are being manipulated, not just by the program, but by people who are giving them information occasionally. That's, that's the state of AI right now, too.
2: Well, and I I really loved that idea. So I mean, within this fictional world, a lot of people believe in the power of AI. To like I love how one of our tech CEOs, Lank, the the Facebook guy, I, I forget what their names are in this, but the Facebook guy, he actually would wait, he would believe in AI over a human analysis over any problem. Right. And that's his approach to the world. And I think a lot of us kind of have that approach. I don't think that's an unusual perspective today. Oh, a computer figured this out. That's got to be accurate. But in fact, within the framework of this novel, she's suggesting that AI has really, really, really deep limitations and that AI. But she talks about both the challenges and affordances of how much power we're giving to AI certainly the number of calculations an AI can do in a second is really really, really well laid out both in lecture format, when we have when we actually go to an online lecture for quite a substantial period of time. Mm-hmm. and in the hardcover book, I don't think they could do this in the audio. I, I I did the audio and then read the hardcover, but they actually have images, there's diagrams of the lecture um, to help you kind of see the matchbox metaphor. But then we also have this personal protection system, right, that can basically foresee the future through, like, super fast algorithmic analysis of
1: all Massive kinds data of sense. things.
2: Exactly. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's a very, but, but I feel like the novel suggests there's a limit. Whereas I think those of us for whom Data is the favorite character, um, <laughs> you know, we're like, no, but maybe maybe there maybe there is a possibility of machine general intelligence um, that would actually exceed what this book considers possible
0: it, I, I still think we're running into some real challenges real world challenges with that First of all there's data scandals going on in universities right now and people are manipulating data so if your AI is pulling from manipulated data it's going to come out, with false claims, and I use models every day with with mine, and I still is my is my data set too small? Is my you know are we pulling the right information from it? I think we're doing a lot of helpful um, use of, of of scientific data, but I still think the data sets that we're pulling from knowing that at some point they could be human uh manipulated um in in fact to take it even further i think it was yesterday or the day before google shut down one of their image uh programs because it was pulling things and making it incorrect they're they're, i think we're going to run into this issue for a, a long time is how do we put together our data, and how does that create the biases for the AI? I, I think it's helpful when we're dealing with very complex things, and we can run hundreds, if not thousands, if not millions of of um, uh, iterations. Yeah, to kind of get a general idea. But this idea that somehow that 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 can be the only source. It may not be asking the philosophical moral questions from it as it's providing maybe something that's that's helpful, that that we think is helpful. We can't look at it as the
1: only tool. Yeah, the philosophy of the matchboxes and beads was fascinating to me. This whole lecture that we get in the middle of this book showing us how mechanical things don't think. Mechanical things can't think. A matchbox and a bead can't learn, but we humans are always trying to find patterns. That's still one of my favorite Doctor Who quotes. I love humans. They always see patterns in things that aren't there. Giving (laughs) faith into matchboxes and beads and thinking they are going to act like humans is irrational.
2: And then I think when we talk about AI, we so often think of the Turing test, right? Can a machine actually pass a test where we wouldn't be able to tell if we're talking to a machine or a human? But the flip side of that is the mechanical Turk, right? It is the idea of, I mean, the this metaphor comes from, I think, the the 19th century where someone was like, I made a machine who can, um, who can beat you at chess. And it's this big machine. And inside the machine is a human chess master, right? And so, and Amazon, (laughs) one of the three companies very much referenced in this novel, um, has this Amazon Mechanical Turk, which is a way for people to, throughout the world, millions and millions of people do Mechanical Turk and they earn very small amounts of money for doing tasks that a lot of us believe can be automated, but actually can't. Um, Mm -hmm. Have either of you guys ever done Mechanical Turk work? No, no, I have, I did it just to find out what it was all about. Okay. Super interesting. So if you are a mechanical Turk, you're a worker in, in this system, um, you can choose a bunch of projects and some of them are surveys. So mechanical Turk's is a way to just get subjects for your surveys. Um, but some of them are like you, you have to look at an image and say that it is or isn't pornography that it does or does not contain X and All of those mechanical Turks, all of those humans who are tagging images, um, quotes, all kinds of things, um, they are developing the data sets and they're just random people who are getting paid like six cents per image tagged or whatever. So this, I, I mean, and this, this idea of having a system that appears to be like, an amazing AI assistant, but that's actually being run by humans is a very fascinating notion. Um, And so there's two very, very different ideas of where AI has and can go in this novel.
1: It's fascinating. It is fascinating to think through where we are at in the state of technology and how much we still are relying on human ingenuity and human creativity the creativity of the ai is not there and and this is a, a an interesting analysis in this book of of how we can live together with the ai or we can have a, a back door where we have these humans who are running the show interesting I know it when I see it. They were talking
0: about pornography, uh-huh. um, and it was the United States Supreme Court Justice Potter Stewart said that. But but anyway, I'm going to bring it back in a different way. Look at this. It has been it it has been a common expression since at least the 19th century. A similar phrase appears in Arthur Conan Doyle's The Hound of the Baskervilles.
1: Woo! Look at that <laughs>
0: deep dive right there. Deep cut.
2: Uh, uh, (laughs) now the really controversial premise i think there's a lot of philosophical things that are unsettled and that are just opening up a lot of questions the really controversial premise in this novel is not one that i agree with at all and i think you didn't either chip which is the idea that like what's the smallest number of people that could be removed from this world that would actually make a positive impact. No, that's a really dark way of <laughs> <out>. <laughs> like, you know, the world is so, right. So,
0: somehow. Yeah. Maybe we're in the Kremlin and we're having this conversation. <laughs> right.
2: Right. And so it's a very, it's a very, very dark premise, obviously. And, but it's funny because the first time I read the novel, four months ago, um, I was like, whoa, is this novel actually suggesting, like, if we get rid of, you know, three major tech billionaires, we'll have a better world?
0: And yes. <laughs> what are we going to do if we yes. don't have the Georgia Guidestones to help us?
2: Um, but but I actually don't know that it's suggesting that. It's saying, like, that's one approach, and I'm not sure it's saying that is the right approach or not, but it is, it's interesting. It's a very, um, it's a very radical suggestion.
0: And, and, and make sure we think about this all the time. And you're going to say, no, no, we don't. Listen, if you're a farmer and you were going to raise sheep or you're going to raise um, cows or something like that, and you wanted to breed them or whatever, you can't have them all interbreeding. You would have to have a number that would allow enough diversity. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so so if you were looking, you could look at humans in the same way. I, my suggestion is, is yes, it's a very dark way of looking at things, but interestingly enough, we, we do that.
1: I, I think they're suggesting here that the revolution could change the rest of the people by removing certain people that not that these certain people on this Island are planning to, uh, repopulate the world they're just going to survive i don't think that there's even any mention of what they're going to do after they survive
0: yeah that's forward thinking right there (laughs) that is like the ultimate selfish thinking the 12 of us survive that's it But you know there's not enough of us to survive so once we go
1: i think that <laughs> definitely the harsh tone of this this writing is is that's exactly what the author is saying is these selfish people have this selfish plan and they're not thinking about anybody else other than themselves
0: yeah yeah yeah
2: <laughs> but it's interesting because throughout throughout the novel you do get these selfish people have these connections to very, very different kinds of people. And I guess that's where I feel like it's, it's interesting that like um, Ellen Bywater, who's the, who's, you know, in in charge of delivery services for the entire planet. um, She is very close to her husband and, and to, I love Badger. Badger is such a great character. Um, Ellen's non-binary kid, who has who basically becomes part of this plot to not kill but sequester for some period of time these three billionaires these three massive tech billionaires and so i find it funny that the the plot it's easy to think like why well and i mean the novel addresses this you've got these three these three bunker billionaires you put them in a plane And you don't take down the plane in the plot. You actually have them go live on an island for a while and you're not sure for how long. And it's funny because there comes a moment where we find out like, why didn't they just kill these three people? If they think that these three people are at the root cause of what's wrong with the world today, why not just kill them? And did you guys notice that the answer to that was?
1: No. Because <laughs> there's <are> so many <laughs>
2: conversations. Oh, sorry. I didn't mean to put you on the spot. There's so many
0: <laughs> but- Well, once again, <laughs> Steve, we're human. <laughs> please, please explain.
2: No, and I think this, is, it's so funny. It's not something I noticed the first time either, but they're like, why don't we just kill them? And they say, because there's no, someone would have changed their mind. Because this is a plot, right? Of Ellen's non-binary child, Link's assistant, and, um, who's the other one? oh my God. Oh, and, um, and then
1: <laughs> I forget
2: everyone's names
1: in this book. Forgive me. Of, There's so many characters you know,
2: of Ellen's child, Link's assistant and the other guy's wife. So these three, they make a plot and they, they actually say, should we just kill these guys? And then they realize, no, because one of us would back out of that. Mm. We have to actually have and and then the whole thing wouldn't work we have to sequester them and see what happens they're not sure enough to kill them of their idea that Mm. three or four major players in the world can control the whole world so they sequester them and they're like these guys are smart and they have a ton of resources they've got their dead man switches in their bodies they've got their army of drones um If we put them in a really bad place, they're going to get out. So we have to sequester them in a way that's engaging and challenging to them, that has some luxury, but not so much that they have free time to think about the rest of the world. We have to put them in the survival game that they've been dreaming of their entire lives. Right. And so there's an uncertainty, despite the harshness of a tone, these guys actually don't kill the, the the plot isn't to kill these guys; it's to sequester them and see what happens.
1: Manipulation,
2: hundred percent.
1: Their mind, Uh-huh. hundred uh-huh. percent. And the then manipulation the manip- up and down this whole plot, uh huh.
2: Exactly, and then the manipulation poses all of these questions, right? So, um, you guys know I like to talk about endings. I don't know if we're <laughs> <here> yet. <laughs> there are more things. Well, maybe one thing we should discuss before we jump to the end is the indigenous epistemologies in this novel. All of these um, frameworks that come from indigenous ways of seeing the world. Like you talked a little bit about the rabbit and the fox, Steve. Um, We also have um, when Martha was a teenager and she was sent out on a kind of quest, um, a survival quest, and she runs into a bear whose jaw is broken. So can't eat. Hungry, hungry, hungry bear who can't eat. But who kills despite the fact that they can't eat? Um, I don't know if you guys made it through the acknowledgments. So this is one of the um, this is a book that that ends and then it has acknowledgments and then it's like a movie. If you make it through the acknowledgments, there's another chapter.
0: It's just the part where they bring Thanos up.
1: It's a secret hidden track. There's there's. there's the um, hidden track. Um... The hidden track remember on cds when yes, they used to be yes. a hidden track
2: yes yes yes
1: so in the acknowledgements Oh, she opens with
2: Margaret Atwood. You guys know Canadian. Oh yes, Margaret Atwood.
1: Well, can so, we talk about the beginning, the the introduction that opens with Ursula K. Le Guin? Yes. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> I wonder why Pam chose this book. It opens with Ursula K. Le Guin and closes with Margaret Atwood. Go on. <laughs>
2: oh, right. I'm so, transparent.
0: I'm so we, transparent. We are not cliches at all. We have never been. Not me.
1: <laughs> I'm an enigma. <laughs> <laughs>
2: that's one of the funnest things about this book club is that we go through these three we each have our favorite kinds of books and we read one after another as we go let's,
0: let's bring up North Carolina <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, um,
2: so in the acknowledgments um, she talks about Margaret Atwood come to the Arctic said Margaret Atwood to me it will change you but maybe I don't want to be changed Margaret I said and yet I did and it did Thank you, Margaret. You were right again. This book owes a huge amount to that trip to the Arctic with the extraordinary Adventure Canada team. And then she talks about meeting indigenous people in in the Arctic and how that was really part of part of the seed of this novel was thinking through the different ways that we understand history and think about the world um and and so I I really appreciated that.
1: And the biblical, Epistemology. We haven't talked about Sodom and how much Sodom plays into this story and the metaphor of the city and how the split between the city people that are living in this bubble that they don't understand how life works because they, they have all the comforts versus the people that are out there doing the work to be alive, to, to survive. I, I, I loved some of those metaphorical pieces. Certainly, very timely. As
0: and, and you know, this it's it's part of our modern society where um, you know Adam Smith talked about it that you don't know how every part of your day, your 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 everything that's being brought to you is made, but you are part of the whole. You know how you may be, you may not be able to make the needle, but you could use the needle. You can, you know, you may not know how to mine the ore. But the steel arrives. You may mm-hmm. not be able to, you know, do any number of things. We all are uh, a cog in the the this this wheel that we haven't really um, that we may not know how to uh, that we can't design naturally.
1: Mm-hmm. It's and unnatural,
2: right? And I love the note of all the intertextual pieces, right? So the this reading of the Bible, this reading of um, indigenous epistemologies. Also the reference to all the apocalyptic novels, many of which we've read as part of this group. Don't worry, on your bunker, you have access to every apocalyptic novel you've ever heard of. Oh, good.
1: Um, (laughs) (laughs) How about the Victorians? Do we have the entire catalog of all the Victorian novels?
2: Sherlock Holmes, it's all here. But then I I feel like, thank you, Steve, for bringing something that I didn't really notice the the um, pillars of Le Guin to start and Atwood to end. But of course, you're completely right. And it's funny, because I thought of Ursula K. Le Guin many times as I was reading this, because of the story that we've talked about, the ones who walk away from Omalas. this idea of a utopian city, where everyone is super, super happy, except for one person locked in the basement, the small neglected child in the basement. Is it worth having a society where you have general health and well-being, where one person has to suffer for it? In a way, I mean, what Alderman is presenting us is like an anti-Omalas, right? Where you have this very small group of people in the perfect society, in the perfect city who aren't at all worried about the future. And then the 8.4 billion people who are in the basement suffering. And so obviously it's far too radical a perspective to be, to be real, but philosophically, I think that's one of the moves that she's making is the anti-Omalas.
1: Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant for her to put together all of these different zeitgeist pieces, this current feeling and this thinking through of what the future holds in such a a really entertaining and action film way with all of the the time jumps and and moving from one piece to another, you can get tied up into so many different pieces of the storytelling. And I got tied up in the philosophy. Maybe in four months when I read it again, I'll get tied (laughs) into a different piece of it. (laughs)
2: <laughs> and i did want to note that it does have a lot of endings i would probably say one or two too many but you guys could disagree or agree or disagree on
0: that listen so but- we sat through lord of the Rings at the end <laughs> <laughs> the never ending ending <laughs>
2: the, ne- the never ending ending i do think there is a lot of ending to this and partly you know The book is called The Future, right? So she just keeps putting forward different potentials and different ideas. And and it is, it is a lot. So we do have, you know, in the ending of this book, major spoiler alert. We have, we go quite a, quite a ways without being positive. Like Mm -hmm. there is no apocalypse, right? (laughs) So the apocalypse was a carefully constructed notion narrative yeah that these guys were totally expecting and willing to accept and it's not true at all right
1: manipulation exactly
2: and then what is true right and then we get martha didn't know that jung was on the island whoa no way Mm -hmm. and then we get jun did know (laughs) that there was no apocalypse i mean we just we just go through this really um kind of harrowing narrative journey where all of our perspectives are flipped upside down. I kind of like it. I kind of thought it was a lot. <laughs> so, <laughs> I don't know.
1: I I think you could study it. I think you could put it into your your class yeah. and have kids study it because there's so much to it that that you could study it and write a lot of papers about it for sure. So, speaking of which, It is Tuesday, February 27th, and there is a book that's being released today, Pam. Pam's new book, The Rutledge Introduction to Canadian Crime Fiction, is being published today. You can go to Barnes & Noble or Google Play and get a copy of Pam's latest work and and just bask in the knowledge like we do every month. She's so embarrassed. I, I love it. I love I love I love how she doesn't want to say a word because she's she's proud of her work, and we're proud of her. And we're so excited to get this in our hands and read all about Canadian crime fiction. We've been watching you write this book for uh, a year,
2: three three years <laughs> wow we'll <on> and,
1: <laughs> and and i I know how excited you are to to share your knowledge. And I am excited to hear your thinking on Canadian crime fiction. So I'm proud of you and and this book. Steve, maybe when we read it, we can become learned. We should have the author in to discuss (laughs) it. (laughs) There we go. That's my embarrassing Pam for the day.
0: Thank you. (laughs) It's so lovely.
1: Pam, thank you so much again for bringing so much knowledge, bringing us a perspective on the future. Uh, We look forward to our our next conversation of our next book that will totally be a stereotype of the person who chooses it. (laughs) Uh, Why not?
2: (laughs) Absolutely. And this, of course, so much fun, so much to think about um, in terms of all of the ideas that, that we discuss here. Thank you.
1: That's The Future, published in 2023 by Naomi Alderman. Scroll with it. Brings us to our scroll with it of the future. After after reading the book, The Future, we, we scoured the news this week. And boy, oh boy, is it all about what's going to happen next. First conversation that I've been having is about Mall culture and the future of shopping. I don't know how many people go shopping anymore, chip shopping, Steve. shopping. shopping. go to a football. talk about football. All right so <laughs>
0: <laughs> always a movie reference train spotting <laughs> right there for you. well, um the our local mall, the the local um and I would say Outer Burbs Mall is mm-hmm. being shut down in Illinois this uh, this week. And the, the city is going to take it over. Eventually, they're going to tear it down. As in, Steve, they're trying to tear down Gen X, but we are never
1: going to allow that to happen, are we, Steve? That's always been my joke, is, is the idea of the mall culture, the mall rats that we were growing up. I could see a retirement village built on that mall culture. Having a Sbarro and a movie theater in my retirement village, I'm I'm ready to move in.
0: I was thinking that we could get together some kids and we could do like a dance contest to save save it from the developer, from the developers,
1: save the shopping mall from the developers. (laughs) It's a
0: community center,
1: Steve. It's a community center. (laughs) I I just don't know. I I don't go shopping. I don't shop. I don't walk into a, a mall to go and see what they have anymore. I think that culture is over.
0: Maybe, maybe I, I, you know, we've got all different ways of doing things. Usually, outdoor malls are kind of where we're going now. You know, certainly we have the internet. Things have changed, and the idea that there's going to be—I I look at Apt Electronics as our example for for those in the Chicago area. Apt is this, this major place. If you wanted to go look at lots of washing machines, lots of televisions, home theaters, whatever. You can go and it's one location and they bring it to you. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think we're going to move to more of that situation because there is going to be a a time when you're going to need like the merchandise, Mark. You need to go look at fabrics or something of that nature. But the idea of every community having this shopping location and it's a place to go stroll, I think it could be something of the past.
1: Yeah, I agree. We talk a lot about AI and predicting things. Can AI predict weather? That is that is a big question of AI. Wasn't that
0: an incredible story to kind of watch on how it has progressed? Artificial intelligence using artificial uh, intelligence to predict weather, then learning about how much computation goes in mm-hmm. to making those uh, it certainly is getting much better. I, I want to say they can do up to what, six or seven hours, six hours, maybe predicting uh, ahead of time. You know, is that a lot of time? Well,
1: <laughs> it could be if it was a disaster, Steve. Right. Yeah. The, the, the question of the data set, the huge amount of data that's being processed, the speed at which we are able to do that. Can we find all of the tiny little pieces that make up weather and make a real prediction with that? That's been the question for for forever. And at least one local
0: personality has determined that it's his time to get out.
1: Yes. Tom Skilling, the meteorologist for Chicago, probably, he's probably known around the country. Don't you think Tom Skilling is our weatherman. He is retiring tomorrow after more than 45 years on the air, meteorological expertise. I I depend upon Tom Skilling's weather predictions. And I don't know that AI Tom is going to be as successful as, as Tom Skilling was. Well, maybe not as personal, Steve. Absolutely not. It just just the joy of weather. He has been that guy that has just been able to explain things on a level that I have enjoyed for for my entire lifetime, and I'm sorry to see him go on. Well, Steve,
0: it looks like another um, Chinese uh, balloon is flying across the United States,
1: well, capturing weather capturing data that that, that's the question is where do we get our data and and how do we use ai with the right data those balloons are a part of that that idea of finding where the data is and using it in our data set why why do you keep winking at me while you're saying that steve oh those well they could certainly could be giving other data is there (laughs) certainly other data to be gleaned from, uh, from, uh, uh, people that are broadcasting their locations. Uh, mm, mm, there is that.
0: <laughs> and then there's a company that does no evil, Steve, Google's deep mind. They have, they certainly have a, a hand in weather-, weather forecasting.
1: Yeah. The, all of the different companies that are, are using all of this computing power to predict the future. Google's deep mind Doesn't seem prepared, doesn't seem ready to be that ultimate predictor of weather, but certainly on the path, certainly getting there, using that ERA-5 data set, which is just a massive set of data, hourly data, starting from 1940 down to the current hour, can we use previous historical data to predict the future? I don't know, Steve, you know, maybe we could ask
0: Johnny Carson's car neck. a
1: car, a squirrel and a banana. <laughs> I love that bit. I, I love Johnny Carson. We've got so many nostalgic pieces of history to talk about. Let's talk about sports a little bit.
0: That's right. Apple has released a sports app, Steve. And my assumption is that they were always collecting this kind of data. And if you've been using ESPN's app or any of the other sports app, it gets really kind of noisy uh, mm. using it. This is strictly like the box scores, you know, like the old newspaper. You can kind of look to it. Um, you can also look at the schedule of what's coming up now. And um, anyway, it's it just seems that Apple has put together, They, I, I don't remember seeing an announcement for it. I did download it. It's very helpful. Once again, if you're trying to figure out who's playing, you know, what the score was last night, it's just a really simple, simple app that does exactly what it's set up to do.
1: It's interesting that they would separate out sports as its own app instead of just making it a part of their news feed. That That's interesting. Sports pays, Dave. Sports pays. There you go. Future of work is also on our radar this week. 61 companies in the UK took part in a six month, four day work week pilot in 2022, the world's biggest trial of shortening our work week. And at least 89% said the policy was still in place two years later. You know what that means for Americans, Steve? (laughs) Four day work. We would, get week. A, we, we would get a second or third job, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> Not the George Jetson, the push button age. Oh, these three day work weeks are killing me. <laughs>
0: well, it is amazing. Uh, I do think we're moving towards a four day work week. We've got some logistics to, to kind of work on to make that happen in the United States. But you know what? We've got at least some data showing that it's working.
1: Yeah. For me, from my perspective, the question of education and child care is the biggest question in if a person is going to work only certain days, how does child care work for that? I, I look forward to this conversation because I, I think you're right. I think we are in the midst of a change. I think that the the shift is on. We'll just see which direction it's going to go. I don't know, Chip. I think we have enough information to survive another week into the future. What do you think? Only if we can come back next week, Steve. We want to thank Pam Bador for once again bringing the knowledge, giving us the, the future of all of the possibilities of what could happen. And and we just love it. We just love having Pam here. Thank you so much. We would love to hear from you. Give us a call or a text. or phone number is 805 4 TMS. Our website is too much scrolling.com. Our email is too much scrolling at gmail.com. We're on all the social medias. We're on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and YouTube. And you can always ask your smart speaker. To play the latest episode of Too Much Scrolling, I want to thank you again for listening to Too Much Scrolling. I'm Steve Foder, I'm Leap Year Chip flow <laughs> We'll see you in the future. The future,
0: more days, Steve, more days. I'll give you another one in four years, Steve.